Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. Okay, last week you um, cornered us into talking about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Because, you know, any every given day I wake up, I am just ready to just have a discussion about the Trinity in the Old Testament. Uh, it's an easy subject for me. It's always on hand in, my, in the back of my mind. It's always on the tip of my tongue. Uh, I can recall all the scriptures of the Trinity in the Old Testament, so... This is this is easy. This is so easy. When we got on our FaceTime call this morning, you said, what are we talking about? And I said, the Trinity in the Old Testament. And your face went white as a ghost. And you started grabbing books off your shelf. I did. I've got a couple of books like, in front of me oh, right what now. What does he say yes. about... I have a couple of books in front of me right now. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's good. No, it's yeah, good. It's no, good. It, it is good. It's good. I think... I think um, I mean, I, that's one of the things that I I could probably point to 10, 15 passages in the New Testament quickly, easily, about the nature, the work, the unity of the Trinity. Um, off the top of my head, probably less in the Old Testament. Just really quickly, once I get going, maybe more will come to mind. Um, but it's not something that's just on the tip of my tongue. It's not something that is just... Uh, talked about often so it's it's helpful to me uh to bring it up uh and to think about it its prevalence in the old testament um that is the father the son and the spirit being present and ministering together in the old testament um so so yeah so i i think the first thing we're going to say is that the trinity is not a new testament doctrine it's not just something that uh, happened when, uh, at the birth of Christ, when the Spirit uh, conceived in Mary, going to God, and Jesus was incarnate. Um, but that that's not when the Trinity happened, when it came to be. Right. Um, last week, just talking about the Christology that we talked about, the fact that Christ is co-eternal. That he is God of God, he is light of light, that there was never a time when Christ was not. Um, we So in terms of time, we've already said that um, Christ is uh, not a New Testament-only uh, thing, nor the Spirit. Uh, so we have to start asking the questions, well, where do we see it? Is it uh, revealed to us in Scripture uh, as work? presence, witness, uh, experience of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit um, in the uh, Old Testament. It would be great if we had some passages like the New Testament that said the Father did this, the Son did this, and the Spirit did this. Uh, but we don't have that language, it doesn't seem, in the Old Testament. Do you think? I, I would certainly say we, we don't. Um, we don't have it in those, those explicit words. terms, especially like you would see, you you would see like in um, the baptismal formulations, like in the in the New Testament, uh, like the Great Commission in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. 
certain aspects of Paul's writing and Colossians and various others where he kind of, I think as we've kind of talked about several times, maybe maybe this has only been privately, but as we've talked about Paul, the way Paul tends to get to Father, Son, Spirit, mm-hmm. Father, Son, Spirit, mm-hmm. and a lot of his a lot of his writings, you can see the application right. there, Father, Son. We certainly don't have that, <clears throat> at least in that kind of clear language in the Old Testament. Uh, well, but, quick, you made a good point. But we were talking earlier. Why do you think we have that in the New Testament? So, so such a clear communication of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We were talking about that earlier. I don't remember <laughs> what I said. <laughs> you were, you were. I think it was helpful. You were talking about the, um, the understanding of the incarnation of Christ, and it only makes sense in a. Uh, in Trinitarian doctrine, right? Oh. That how could you explain well, well, God, man? Yeah, I mean, imagine, just imagine for just a second that you're an apostle and you follow Jesus, you believed that he was, uh, as John mm-hmm. puts it, um, begotten, only begotten of the Father, full mm-hmm. of grace and truth. No one has ever seen um, the father, but, but the son, the, the, he says in John one eighteen, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, mm-hmm. he has made him known. I mean, if you're, you're an apostle and you're following along and you believe this about Jesus, Jesus ascends after his crucifixion and resurrection, he ascends and you're evangelizing a room full of Jewish men. And you're trying to tell them that God took on flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only mm-hmm. begotten of the father full mm-hmm. of grace and truth how can you possibly make this make sense there's no there's no writings of paul yet there's no uh acts of the apostles mm-hmm. <clears throat> there's no um there's no writings really to speak of of the mm-hmm. new testament all you have is an old testament copy and your three-and-a-half-year journey with Jesus. How do you make Jesus make sense to Jewish men who grew up reading the Shema that, and reciting, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is mm-hmm. one. Um, how do you make mm-hmm. that make sense? I was in the cab of a of a well a, a Uber ride of a Muslim man. You watch movies at Blockbuster. A, a driver. Yeah, 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 yeah. I hailed a cab. Uh, no, I I got an Uber and I was in the back of an Uber ride and and a Muslim man was was driving, and I said, um, "What do you believe about Jesus?" And he said he was a prophet. And I said, "Why don't you believe he was the Son of God?" And he said, because God doesn't have a son. Mm. And I said, how do you know? <laughs> that was almost where the conversation ended. But, uh, but um, I think he was the one that dinged me, gave me like one mm. star too. So mm. Uh, mm. anyway, <laughs> but uh, persecution, such is life. There you go. But, but imagine, and like when you, when you talk to a, a Muslim, that's, I mean, Obviously, that's different than Judaism, mm-hmm. but but you can sense a similar worldview in the background. 
how is John or any other apostle for that matter going to convince them, no, no, Jesus really is God in the flesh, and yet he is the Son and not the Father, like we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. How would you do that? Well, if you've got the Old Testament, then you have to be able to go back into the Old Testament and demonstrate to them that God has always been triune. He has always been triune. He has as uh, never been uh, one in the sense that the Jews have believed mm -hmm. he is one uh, from the beginning, that he has always been the Father, Son, and Spirit. And you have to be able to demonstrate that. And so what, what we find when we go back to the Old Testament is there is a plethora of places where the Old Testament explicitly calls out Father, Son, mm -hmm. and Spirit. Um, maybe not using those terms, Father, Son, and Spirit, but various other terms that once we have, once the lights are turned on in the New Testament, we go back into the Old Testament and we can clearly see the furniture in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas perhaps those walking only in the Old mm -hmm. Testament before had had been in the room and had known that there was furniture in there, there was something in there. But it's not until the New Testament the lights get turned on and we go, ah, yeah. here it is. This is a couch. Yeah, this is a chair. Really right? helpful to think about when you open up your Bible, The <clears throat> instead of looking at it as, well, the New Testament introduces this Trinitarian doctrine, which really makes the Old Testament confusing. Instead of what's really going on, what you're saying is the Old Testament has all of these Father, Son, Spirit works in them and mentionings in them, and it's the New Testament that actually makes them make sense if we're reading our Bibles. Yes. So it's it's vice yes. it's actually vice versa. Right. Right. And and, and it's in what, what that I think that does for the Christian as we begin to understand that is first of all it gives us confidence in that we can sit down with anyone and that person could drop us into the middle of any book in the Bible. Not just in the New Testament, but in the Bible. And we can demonstrate to that person the work of God through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, in virtually every book in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's mm -hmm. really helpful, I think. That's, that's, a, that's a, it's a powerful message of the unity of the Scriptures. You're talking about 66 books written by no less than 40 mm -hmm. men from, what, three different uh, continents in many different mm -hmm. languages um, that are all testifying to the same thing? I mean, what mm -hmm. are the odds of that? You can't get two people today from a similar worldview in the same room to agree about virtually anything. <laughs> and yet you've got no less than 40 men writing 66 books over in many different languages over 1500 years all testifying to the same truths about mm -hmm. god i mean it, it gives us a, a not not only a confidence with the scriptures but but i think it makes a compelling argument to the mm -hmm. unbeliever hey you should really pay attention to this book it's different than the books you might encounter and to the believer that this is not this is not like an encyclopedia of doctrine. Um, this is not just kind of a thrown together collection of various works through time, but that this is 
one spirit revealed unit revelation of God that it all that it all works together. When you sit down to read it, it you have great confidence in in what you're yeah. reading and, and amazement and wonder and uh, esteem uh, for not only God's word but ultimately for Him Himself and the the unity that is in God from creation uh, to the apocalypse and the new creation. Uh, so there there is a lot of confidence there. So so okay. So we're yeah. we we want to see. Uh, you know, in so much as we can see such things, but in Scripture, um, right? Where do we, where do we, where do we begin? Word used intentionally to see the Trinity in the Old Testament. Where, where do we begin to see the three in one revealed and at work? Yeah, I mean, I think as early as Genesis one, you have the the triune godhead being articulated in one way or another you see it first in genesis 1 yep. 2 the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters um i think you've got clearly there if you're reading this as as a as a jew and no new testament background none of that you might be tempted to say Moses is being kind of metaphorical with the mm-hmm. language, or perhaps he's trying to describe God in his mm-hmm. language by saying the spirit of God and maybe meaning um, God is spirit, mm-hmm. right? So he's he's saying basically it's just another it's a it's a longhand form of referring to God Himself was hovering over the face of the waters. But I think once you get into the New Testament and the lights come on, you go, wait a second. That's Trinitarian language. That's the mm-hmm. Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is there in creation. Obviously, the New Testament is going to affirm that the Son was there in creation. John affirms that in John 1. Not, without him was not anything made that was made. But um, and, and, and so I think the New Testament affirms that in, in many different places that the Son was there as well. But, um, you know, I think you get further down into Genesis, Genesis 1, and you get um, him saying, let us make man in our image. Mm-hmm. I think probably as a Jew, you're, you're probably thinking of that not so much in Trinitarian language, obviously. You're probably thinking um, when he says, let us make man in our image after our mm-hmm. likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the heavens mm-hmm. and over the whole earth, that he's probably talking, if you're a Jew now, probably talking to the council, the heavenly council, the sons of God, as it's referred to throughout the Old Testament, as a, a, a group of angelic beings who are appointed with the task of having dominion over the heavenly realm, sort of God's... Uh, God taking his authority and uh, and working through people, um, making it, uh, um, putting, putting people in charge of particular mm-hmm. areas, and in this case, heavenly beings being in particular, in charge of particular areas, and him saying to them, let us make man in our image, and mm-hmm. uh, and, and that kind of thing. The, pro- the pushback I would have against that as a Christian, now in light of the New Testament, having the lights turned on, I would look at that and say, 
but those sons of God were not creating mm-hmm. anything. And so his appeal is let us right. make. And and that would seem to say that those who he's those whom he's mm-hmm. talking to are is uh, is gonna are gonna be involved in right. creation. Um and so that would seem, I think, to make a pretty compelling argument for Trinitarian language. And mm-hmm. does, I think, provide a, a great deal of conversation. So immediately from Genesis one, you've got uh, you've got some Trinitarian um, language right. coming through in just the creation of yep. of the world. Which you see of the universe, you see Paul coming back to reiterate that in Colossians one, all things were made uh, through him, whether things on heaven and earth, visible or yes. invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, yeah. all things were created by, through, and for him. Colossians one sixteen. Yes. In Colossians or in John chapter one, there's nothing that has come into being that has not come into being, come into being through him. All things come from him. So yeah, the New Testament picks up on that idea that uh, rather you know, regardless. It's very explicit in the New Testament. It seems to make a lot of sense to explain what's going on in, Revel- in Genesis when we hear it in the apostolic testimony about who Christ is. Yeah, and where, where does Paul get that? Like, where does Paul have get, get off, uh, you know, get enough whatever uh, gumption to say that all things were made through him, without him when nothing was made that has been made? If he's not looking at Genesis 1 and saying... Well, it's right there, right? I mean, that's. it seems apparent that right. that's what he's doing. He's looking at Genesis 1 and going, let us make man in our image. Uh, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I mean, he, he's obviously picking up the actions of the Trinity and the involvement of the Trinity in the created order and pointing that out in the Scriptures. I think that seems to be apparent, you know. But it's not just—I mean, it's not just that. You—you—you you, you keep walking. If you—if you've got the lights turned on in the New Testament, you come back into the Old Testament, and you see throughout Genesis, throughout the entire Pentateuch, now we start to see this figure popping up and revealing mm-hmm. himself to mankind over and over yep. and over again, and a lot of times referred to as the the angel of the lord but that's not the exclusive term that's being used sometimes this person this person is just described um but sometimes he's used the the moniker the angel mm-hmm. of the lord not an angel of the lord but the mm-hmm. angel of the lord is used to describe him genesis 16:7 to 11 the the angel of the lord uh, found hagar by spring of water in the wilderness, the, the spring mm-hmm. and the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from a mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that you cannot be numbered for multitude, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. So even there in Genesis 16, you have the angel of the Lord saying to Hagar something that God, that Yahweh has mm-hmm. said to Abraham, I'm going to multiply yeah. your offspring. 
right? So immediately as the reader, you're going, ooh, that's that's Yahweh-like yeah. language, you know, that he's, that he's using there. But then as you go further, Genesis 22, and there's several different, I'm not pointing out all of them, there's several passages throughout where, where Abraham's interacting with this person and it, and there's a difference in their interaction you can see that in in the way that they interact with one another but genesis 22 11 to 18 the angel of the lord came to him this is abraham and said to him abraham abraham and he said here i am he said do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him for now i know that you fear god seeing that you have not withheld your son your only son from me um and Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, and, and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. Obviously, he discovers him. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Uh, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, uh, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars in the heavens. And so he, he reiterates this promise. Now, so far, what we have in Genesis 22 in this kind of interaction between the angel of the Lord and Abraham, I think a, if a Jew were sitting next to me who does not believe in Jesus and does not believe any of that and, and only believes you know, one God, no Trinity, none of that, they would probably say, no, the angel of the Lord is just articulating something on behalf of God, mm-hmm. right? Um, so he says, by myself I have sworn, declares the <clears throat> Lord. So he's saying, he's just relaying what right. the Lord has declared. Okay, that fair enough. Until the light starts to shine on a lot of these other passages, and then when you read back into it, you kind of see, oh, that that's actually not what's what's being said. So you go to Exodus 3, 6, 1 to 6, where Moses... Very familiar passage. Moses encounters the burning mm-hmm. bush, and he's in the and in it, but it but it actually says in Exodus three two, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So who is appearing to him? Is it mm-hmm. Yahweh? Well, that's the mm-hmm. way we we hear it taught, and rightfully so. It is Yahweh, but he says specifically it's the angel of the Lord that is appearing to him. And Moses, uh, and Moses turns aside and sees it, and then in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So the one appearing to him is identified both as the angel of the Lord and God calling to him out of the bush. And he said, and Moses said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. That becomes an important phrase because obviously Moses is encountering the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, and he's told the ground you are standing on is holy ground, so remove your sandals. And you might be inclined to think, well, okay, maybe the angel of the Lord is doing something funny here on behalf of -hmm. of God. Um, But when you get to Joshua, especially in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, Joshua uh, lifts up his eyes and he sees a man standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. This is in verse 13. And Joshua said to uh, Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? In verse 14, he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Verse 15, and the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And so you, you have now the commander of the army of the Lord actually telling Joshua the same thing that the angel of the Lord told Joshua, uh, told Moses back in, back in Exodus Mm -hmm. at the burning bush. And so you start to see this figure that that's been appearing um, to the servants of God. You start to see him as maybe more significant than just an angel, just a messenger. He's not simply just a messenger, it seems. He's more than that. Um, so uh, it's, you know, it's... Um, we start to kind of build this this mm-hmm. picture of someone representing the Lord, appearing to people on behalf of God, and as they bow their face down to him, he accepts their mm-hmm. worship. And he says, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy ground. That is a completely different picture than what we get in Revelation 19.10 when an angel is standing next to John, the apostle, And John says, I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So the angel there is correcting John, not accepting his worship. The angel in the Old Testament who appears as the angel of the Lord, who appears as the commander of the armies Mm -hmm. of the Lord, he accepts the worship of these that fall mm-hmm. down to his feet. He tells them, take off the, the, your sandals to the ground you're standing on is holy. Um, you see this in, in uh, the relationship with, uh, in, in Judges with uh, Samson's parents as they encounter, they make a sacrifice and the angel of the Lord goes up in the smoke mm-hmm. of their sacrifice. Um, passage after passage after passage, we see the angel of the Lord showing up to mm-hmm. people. And and he actually appears to be different than a regular mm-hmm. angel. And then in the New Testament, you have Paul and John both saying, John, John in 118, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him mm-hmm. known. What is he talking about? Is he talking about just the incarnation of Jesus in the New Testament? Or is he also talking about throughout time, no one has mm-hmm. ever seen God? What well, seems to be, if you take his statement on the surface, no one has ever seen God. He means that mm-hmm. literally true. No one has mm-hmm. ever seen God. Well, what about Moses meeting with God face to face in the tent? What about uh, a, all of these encounters? What about Moses at the burning bush or a, a number of different things? What was that? Well, it seems what John is saying is that the word made flesh. He's the one throughout time who has been making God the Father known hmm. to people. Um, in his appearance to them. And then Paul backs him up in First Tim- First Timothy 6.16, um, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Mm-hmm. To him be eternal uh, honor and eternal mm-hmm. dominion. Amen. What does mm-hmm. Paul mean there? If we clearly have evidence of people meeting with God and mm-hmm. seeing God, 
unless it is the the angel of the Lord, unless it is the eternal mm-hmm. Son of God, who has who can actually say, "If you've seen me, you've seen the Father." So that people can say, "I have met with God," and yet no one has ever seen the Father, right? Um, you know, both of those things can be true at the same time, but the only way they can be true is if we take the 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 scriptures at face value and we understand that the Son of God has made Him known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's funny as you mentioned that passage in John. That was this is a total side note, but one of the the greatest uh, arguments my wife and I've ever had was on that passage in John. What has anyone ever seen the Father? It was in a family devotion. And as I recall, yeah. our family devotion ended. Our kids went to bed, and Colette and I are on opposite sides of the living room, uh, having a fairly spirited, no pun intended, argument about whether or not anyone has ever seen God. <laughs> and what was yeah. the meaning of that passage? Because, <laughs> um, yeah. So, well, I, I think that's it's so helpful to to see that um, there is what you're getting at is this idea that there was a not incarnate but present ministry of pre-incarnate present ministry of the son from creation to Moses uh, in the form of the angel of the Lord Uh, and that is how he was known and experienced uh, by Israel in the Old Testament albeit entirely seemingly had to be entirely unbeknownst to them exactly what was happening that this is a part of progressive right. revelation that there was no yeah. there was no concept for god being a man or coming in the form of a man um that this was a these christophanies were shadows in a sense um but couldn't have been um like they they did not grasp yet all the pieces coming together when they're experiencing this, um, even though they're yeah. acknowledging uh, the one they're talking to as the Lord Himself. Yeah, I mean that's that's even apparent. Judges two one in verse one, where the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, "I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I swore to give your father mm-hmm. to your fathers." This is the angel mm-hmm. of the Lord saying that so to your point their interaction with Yahweh who is delivering them from the hand of slavery and the yoke of the Egyptians and into the land of their to give to give to their fathers their interaction is Yahweh is delivering us and the angel of the Lord is saying in judges yeah I did that yeah the That's land me. that I swore to give your right fathers. so it's it seems yeah. clear I will never the, he says I will never break my covenant with you um yeah that's uh and he says yeah. i said yeah i said that's not something that, that you know even a whether it's a prophet or or a um uh a, mm-hmm. an angel they they make clear from mm-hmm. whom they're speaking the lord says i said yeah. i've delivered you but the angel of the lord doesn't say that he says i brought you up yeah. i delivered you I will never break a covenant with you, and he's he's pointing to himself, and so it becomes it becomes evident then that the one who has always been the one to interact with humanity, 
on behalf of God mm -hmm. the Father has been mm -hmm. the Son from the beginning, mm -hmm. that our interaction with God has been in the person of the Son. And I, my contention is that from the earliest stages of the, of the New Testament church, this is their evangelistic message to the, mm -hmm. to the Jews. Listen, the pre-incarnate Christ has always been the one that we've interacted mm -hmm. with. He's always been the one to reveal the Father to us. That what we see in Christ is the physical manifestation, the, the, the actual embodiment, the exact imprint of the nature of God himself to us. And mm -hmm. it always has been throughout time. And then when the when those lights come on you you go back and you start to see when G, especially with Jesus in the baptismal formula in the name of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit you start to go back into the old testament and you see um f whether it's in Exodus uh I have filled him with mm -hmm. the spirit of God uh he was filled mm -hmm. with the spirit of God in Exodus mm -hmm. 35 31 uh <clears throat> you know the Spirit of God mm -hmm. came upon him, Numbers 24, 2, when mm -hmm. someone prophesies. Um, Samuel, mm -hmm. all throughout Samuel, is the Spirit of God rushing upon Saul, rushing upon his men, and what do they do? Mm -hmm. They prophesy. Um, so time and again, I mean, th there's probably 14 or more references to just the phrase, mm -hmm. the Spirit of God, and it's mostly in those senses where the Spirit of God rushes upon someone and they mm -hmm. do something. Uh, on behalf of God, whether it's prophesy, have understanding, or a number of different actions that they commit. Um, and all of those are completely and entirely consistent with what we see happen at Pentecost, mm -hmm. right? Where the Spirit of God rushes upon the apostles, Peter preaches. Um, in Acts, throughout Acts, the Spirit of God rushes upon someone and they speak in tongues or they, yeah. number of different yeah, and they, I think that I think that brings up something I was thinking about as you're talking that the the work there is in a sense which there, there is a sense in which our our not our understanding of the Trinity is that there is this big change from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and that is that right. is true. There are there are things that the Spirit does and the way He does them. Uh, there is the incarnation of the Son that was not there before. There is the fullness of the plan of God. Um, that is uh, taking place now in history. Progressive revelation is coming to a, a a climax and a peak in Christ that wasn't happening before. Uh, but what we're talking about is that the ministry of this Father, Son, and Spirit in the Old Testament was there all along, and that really it is in some ways reciprocal. It is not it is not unique. So that you know, as you're talking about the rushing on of the Spirit. Uh, like it, like the Spirit did to Saul and to others, uh, to enable them. As you you see the Spirit in movements through the Old Testament, you see the Spirit doing things that sound like the movement of the New Testament. So you see the Spirit in creation in Genesis, uh, but then you begin to really see the yep. Spirit working uh, in the Exodus on the other side of salvation in filling uh, Bazalel, or I can't remember his name, uh, and, and the priest in Exodus 28 and in Exodus 31, 
where he is filling his people and his ministers to go about and do the work. So that the the idea exactly. is in Exodus, how how would they how could these people who haven't done anything except uh, build bricks out of hay for four hundred years? Uh, how are they going to actually come and build a tabernacle and a temple and an army and a city? And Exodus 31, 1 through 5 says, The Lord said to Moses, I have called by my name Bazalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. Not just the Spirit, not just a Spirit, but I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. So how did we get the tabernacle? How did we ever get anything like the temple? The Spirit of God came upon His people and, and gave yes. them gifts in a sense, to uh, for for that to happen, that happens later in Numbers chapter eleven when Moses uh, is passing on the spirit of the, that is in him, and he is sharing it with other other leaders and elders, and then um, they prophesy when they receive the spirit. They don't just get authority, kind of that kind of spirit of Moses, um, but they prophesy. After they hear, so it looks very much like Acts two, and like you said, like Pentecost, where when they receive the Spirit, they do things that they could only do by God and by His power, and yeah. that's part of Saul's frustration. He receives the Spirit, but then he loses the Spirit. You have David praying later in Psalm fifty-one, "Lord, let not Your Spirit be taken from me." You have to wonder if he doesn't have Saul back in his mind. Uh, remembering Saul's paranoia at having lost God and lost the Spirit. Um, but then the, the kind of last phase in the Old Testament is the prophetic witness of the prophets. The, the last uh, kind of word in the Old Testament is the prophets speaking to God's wayward people. Um, and you see, even in the book of Ezekiel, in <coughs> Ezekiel is uh, seeing the vision of the, the uh, heavenly temple uh, and the throne, and the throne that is on wheels coming to and fro. It's following the movement of the Spirit everywhere that they go. So you see the ministry of the mm -hmm. Spirit is empowering the prophetic testimony, the revelation of God's mm -hmm. Word. Uh, that and, and these are prophetic words that no one could know mm -hmm. uh, about local events. Uh, in their time and history, and also far foreseen events in Christ's time and even beyond the time of Christ uh, that are clear revelations of uh, the Spirit of God that was given to them. So it's, uh, it, it's helpful to see, I mean, those are pretty broad movements in the Old Testament, but they're, the Spirit is in all, in all of them acting. Uh, yeah. We're that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the references to the Spirit and what he's doing specifically uh, in, the, in the Old Testament. So um, yeah. the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all working in tandem, all doing very similar ministries in the Old Testament yeah. as in the New. So I think a couple of things for us to consider might be, uh, well, what is, 
what is the difference then? You know, we, did we just explain away the difference <laughs> between the Old and New Testament? Is there a difference? And then really, what, is this, uh, wh- what does this mean for us? Is it encouragement? Is it clarity about Scripture? Is it doctrinal? Um, wh- wh- where does this really take us when we come to Scripture? Um, so I think first, Old Testament, New Testament, what is kind of the, the New Covenant aspect of the work, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, um, that we didn't see. What are your first thoughts? Well, John in one in John one fourteen, which we I think we may have mentioned last week, and the Word became flesh and dwelt mm-hmm. among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, this is the the what's new it's not that jesus came to being well i suppose jesus you know he wasn't named jesus until the new testament so i guess that's true but that the son did not come into being in the new Mm -hmm. testament john is acknowledging what happened in the new testament is that the eternal son of god took Mm -hmm. on flesh that's new that was not always right so his enfleshedness, uh, his incarnate nature, has not always been since the beginning. It is. It has. It has now been. It has now happened in the new in the new covenant. So that's that's mm-hmm. new, and <clears throat> the significance of him taking on flesh is that his death is atoning mm-hmm. for us. Um. You mentioned the Bonhoeffer quote last week. Many other quotes too throughout history about uh, the the necessity of him being both truly God mm-hmm. and truly man. And so we have in the God Man Jesus some someone a, a person a member of the Trinity who has taken mm-hmm. on flesh, which which is in, entirely new. Um, as a result of him taking on flesh, he also merited all the righteousness of God by his perfect mm-hmm. life. So that's mm-hmm. significant, right? That as a man, he lived a perfect life. He was without sin mm-hmm. um, and tempted as, as we are, yet without sin. And that is also significant because, as a as a true Jew, as a uh, as a as a man, as someone who lived perfectly, he completed what Adam mm-hmm. failed to do, and what we, as Adam's children, are mm-hmm. all guilty of. And yet he lived perfectly, and so his righteousness is given to us because of the way he lived as a man, right? Um, so that's significant, you know, that, that's a a huge thing that's happening in the new Testament in, in, as a result of Mm -hmm. Jesus's life. So all of these things now come into play. His sinless life Mm -hmm. matters that we defend as Christians, his sinlessness, Mm -hmm. his perfection. Uh, it, it really does matter. It matters theologically. It matters biblically. It matters to make any of this actually even work, it matters that he was mm-hmm. sinless. Um, he merited 
the, the righteous rewards that God would give to those who live righteously. Mm-hmm. That's Jesus. He's the fulfillment of that, the unique yeah. fulfillment of that. So, so I think all of those things yeah. all come into play. You know? Yeah, I think too of the Spirit in terms of uh, in terms of New Testament salvation, uh, the Spirit doing something that was not happening in the Old Testament is the uh, the yeah. permanence of regeneration yes. being the ceiling as where the Spirit is yes. spoken kind of in a limited way as of rushing on people, right? Yep, coming and going. Uh, that there is the, in, in the New Testament, it's um, the Spirit is spoken of as that power for regenerating work. So Titus speaks of it this way, when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly mm-hmm. through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there's the Trinitarian work, I mean, right there. God poured out through Christ. Um, so right. we, we have justification by his grace that we might become heirs and Paul picks up the heirs language in Ephesians 1 that we are that in Christ we are sealed by the spirit who is the guarantee of our uh, the guarantor of our uh, inheritance until we acquire possession of it so that the presence of the spirit expressing being uh, the power of regeneration being expressed in the testimony of faith in Jesus Christ the presence of the spirit doing that is the seal of inheritance. It's the, it's the stamp, it's the sealing, it's the assurance uh, that you are a son, you are in Christ, you do have the inheritance of his children coming in the future, that that is the, the role of the Spirit. And part of the... Um, she was... Uh, the... the the, the part of the difference is that this is not just to Israel as well, that this uh, the Spirit is now saving all nations and all people, and the seal is not, well, is Abraham your father? No, the question is, is God your father? And yes, if the Spirit has sealed you and you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then yes, you are of the adopted mm-hmm. people who have the inheritance to look forward to. And again, we're talking about inheritance and the the spirit, the spirit sealing for the promise of inheritance. I mean, this is this is the Old Testament narrative working itself out. You know, who is bit who has been mm-hmm. given the inheritance of the land? Who has been given God's promises? Who who is sure that they will receive what God has promised in this and the generations to come? Well, we're just doing that again, but now we are expanding. Uh, we are, we are. Uh, the New Testament is seeing what what God always meant to do was never only save Israel, but to save the nations through Israel by by bringing Christ. So that that Spirit is doing the same kind of work, um, but very differently in its an yeah. effect, in His effect, and and who He is saving, and what the, the 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 security that the presence of the Spirit means for believers today. Right. Right. Right, and so it, you know, th- to me, I think because I think it's necessary. We 
we can get into like some heady theological talk and probably have over the last two weeks, but it's, you know, we've always kind of seen this um, forum as a way of taking what we preach mm-hmm. on Sundays and saying, how does that come to bear on our lives mm-hmm. as Christians? And, and why does this actually end up mattering to us? And I know we touched on some of that at the beginning, but I think, too, we have to probably say, or maybe it bears repeating, God has never hidden himself from humanity. Mm. And that, to me, is one of the most profound things in the Trinitarian mm-hmm. talk in both Old Testament and New Testament is that here is humanity whom he created in his image, who sinned and rebelled. And yet God never hid himself from his mm-hmm. from these people, mm-hmm. from us. He's always chosen to reveal himself to us. Mm-hmm. And and in a very personal way, not in a not merely in obviously there there has been you know god as mm-hmm. holy other and yet also as imminent and near and he's always been that way mm-hmm. throughout time and i think even if you and this may be pushing the boundaries a little bit but if you you got the lights turned on in the new testament and you go back mm-hmm. to read the old testament and you see the angel of the lord appearing to people all throughout the Old Testament, fine. But then you get into Genesis 4, post-sin. Who is this that's talking to Cain and warning him about his sin? Mm-hmm. I mean, he says, um, so Cain was very angry because his, his mm-hmm. offering was rejected, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, Will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Mm-hmm. Who is that talking to mm-hmm. Cain? I mean, we have the Lord, right? And we fair enough. We don't have the angel of the Lord. We don't have commander of the army. But if we understand that the one interacting with humanity throughout time has been the second person of the Trinity, he is making mm-hmm. God known to people, then I would venture to say, and I, I would feel pretty confident in my assertion that, that that's also the second mm-hmm. person of the Trinity, warning Cain mm-hmm. about his sin, that what, what is, what's about to happen to him is he about to be dominated by his sin, and he mm-hmm. must rule over it. But Cain is powerless mm-hmm. to do that, and he feels mm-hmm. powerless to do that. And he sure enough is dominated by his sin. It, it rules over him. And yet, this is proof positive that the one giving the warning is the one that's needed to come in and do the conquering of the sin. Mm-hmm. And he's going to do it. He's going to take on flesh and he's going to conquer sin on behalf of all the Cains mm-hmm. out there right? <laughs> who, who have sin mm-hmm. crouching at the door. And he's going to rule over it. You know, and, and you know, that, I think that's a, a powerful, that makes the Old Testament... I feel like just come alive mm-hmm. when you realize that this is not this is not an inner stirring 
that Cain has in his heart, like we might talk about sometimes. You know, this this is not um, Cain getting an impression that the Lord's saying to him, why are you angry? You know, sin is mm-hmm. crouching at your door. No, this is God himself mm-hmm. in the person of the Son meeting with Cain and saying to him personally, sin mm-hmm. is crouching at your door. Yeah. You know, to me that that makes the Old Testament not so much this like even really mystical thing of just like how did they what does he mean he heard the voice yeah. of the Lord and what what does he mean you know it it makes it so much less mm-hmm. transcendent and so much more God imminently meeting mm-hmm. with His people in yeah. the person of the Son and interfacing yeah. with them on a personal yeah. level yeah and I think I think that's hard because I don't think you want to start telling people to look for Christophanies where Moses doesn't give them to us or demand them from sure. us. And, you know, as a Bible sure. interpretation, well, anytime God's speaking in the Old Testament, that's clearly Christ. He's there because the only way God can speak is through some kind of Christophany. And I, I know you don't mean that. Um, I think what you said that's most helpful for me is the immediate uh, application being that we we cannot say, I mean, for for us to say that God has, you know, where is God in history? Where has God revealed Himself? That 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 is such a common struggle for people, you know. We're, we and we have that we have moments all the time where things go bad, and we start asking, "Where is God?" And we take ourselves out of history, and we take ourselves out of the Bible revelation. And we take ourselves out of everything that God has done from creation to now. And and we basically demand and minimize all of God's revelation to our moment of suffering. Where is God? The, I can only know God if he were here doing something about this now. And God's like, uh, really? Because <laughs> I've been pretty busy <laughs> revealing myself. And th- I mean, this has been one of the most encouraging things for me just in preaching the book of Revelation. I've mentioned this before. It continues to be helpful for me that God is not a God that is concealing himself, laughing behind the veil because uh, we can't see him and we can't know him and we keep missing him. He He's revealing himself everywhere. I mean, just mm-hmm. all over the place to the point where you're like, how could you miss everything that God has been uh, doing in history, in the sun now, and in the spirit now. I think one question for you would be: Is it fair to look at Scripture as kind of a progressive, as a progressive? And I don't have an answer for this, a solid answer off the top of my head. Maybe some unformed ideas. Is it fair to look at the Bible as a progression through the Trinity, as in uh, emphasizing the work of the Father, then emphasizing the work of the Spirit and the Son? in the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, and now we are in the age of the Spirit, where this is, where the the, the Spirit has kind of stepped forward. Um, Is that fair? I I think there's some of what we've said today that could maybe sound like we're going that direction. Do we mean to say that? Is that fair, that there's kind of a movement through the Bible of Father to Son to now the Spirit has come? Do you think that's fair? Um, I don't know that I 
would love the way that is stated. <laughs> um, I certainly, I certainly could see what you're saying. I mean, I, I yeah, obviously, uh, the the those who are in Christ are, are sealed by the Spirit, and so in some ways, you might say that a New Testament Christian is, you know, under the the maybe administration to some degree of the spirit, the spirit dwells within us, uh, which is, is different than historically has been the case, you know, prior to Christ. Okay. So granted that may be true, but I think to continue that sort of Trinitarian concept that, uh, that Trinitarian, uh, reality of God, um, that it's always been, the ministry of mm-hmm. God that he has always been three in one yep. father son and spirit that we've always been under their administ under uh, under mm-hmm. his administration and um, and you know to the point where it's even hard it's it's hard to talk about right like I almost said I said there and and you know I don't necessarily mean that I just mean you know God's administration Um that it's always been Father, Son, and Spirit. And we see it throughout the Old Testament, that it's always been the ministry of God to be triune and ministering to his people in a triune way. Uh, and that the Father, Son, and Spirit have always mm-hmm. had a role, even as far back as the Old Testament. Um, and and yet, um, we can also see a, a progression of his ministry to us that is progressively i think if there is a progression it's progressively mm-hmm. more intimate where it, it's it's you know jesus you know he says to, to his disciples that all of those great prophets of old whom john is the foremost they long to see mm-hmm. this day you know um and and that we are in is as crazy as it sounds like we would love to be Joshua standing there talking to the commander of the army mm-hmm. of the Lord or or Moses standing at the burning bush and yet they would love to have the spirit of God mm-hmm. dwelling within them mm-hmm. permanently and that 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 is a more advantageous mm-hmm. position to be and so i think if there is a progression that we see it's not necessarily in the ministry of God revealing himself in different ways as Father or Son or Spirit, but as God himself growing progressively more intimate with his people to where he redeems them and then dwells mm-hmm. within them. And and that's the, the, the place we stand in history is where the Spirit of God takes up residence within mm-hmm. us, directs yep. our steps, uh, convicts us of sin, yep. points us to Christ, you know that, and 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 we're advantaged mm. in every way. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I I think there are denominations that are built around emphasizing uh, one part of the Trinity and His work over the other. Sure. Uh, not not just certain works of the the work of the Spirit. Uh, it's uh, His gifts uh, to the church and emphasizing certain gifts and what they mean for salvation, uh, but. I think underneath that may be just a fundamental ideal that this is the age of the Spirit, that this is the ministry of the Spirit, that, you know, that there, there's kind of a movement to now the way that you know you're a Christian is 
by singling out this work of the Spirit. There's a lot of people who believe in Jesus, a lot of people who believe in God, but do you have the Spirit? And obviously that's true. Paul said, Romans 8, you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. You, you can't not have the Spirit yeah. and be a Christian. But the emphasis right. being singling out one part of the Trinity to say this is uh, this is the way that we determine faith um, by outworking of the Spirit into these kinds of gifts. And it 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 is something that you can't do from Genesis to Revelation. Single out one of the parts of the Trinity, one of the persons, let me say, of the Trinity, and say they were working in um, they were working on their own in time. Yeah, it was a solo act. Yes. Yeah. This was the time yeah. where they were working. This was the dispensation, if you will, when they were working right. on their own, when you know, we reject modalism that God showed up at a time like this, and then later he showed up at a time like this, and um, but that he was always three in one. He has always been, he is, and he has always been working and revealing himself three in one from Genesis uh, to Revelation. And it just raises all kinds of uh, you know, affections of, of praise and wonder and right. awe yeah. and uh, opens up the Bible to once again be one big connected book, uh, one connected yeah. revelation uh, where, because I think a lot of Christians get confused about the, the transfer from the Old Testament to the New Testament uh, and all everything changed, right? And we don't know, is this yeah. the same God? Is he different? He was mean in the Old Testament, now he's nice in the New Testament. Uh, he was, you know, judging the Old Testament. Now he's very merciful. Now he's actually been himself right. and been revealing himself uh, all three parts uh, from beginning to end. That there is continuity. Right. That our, our faith is based on a continuity from creation to new creation, and nothing right. has ever changed. It, 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 that is comforting. It, yeah. It's it feels like standing on solid yeah. ground. Uh, and might, yeah. might we say that ground is also holy ground? Yeah, yeah, and he's he's as as sometimes I think you know as a Christian as as maybe alone as I can mm-hmm. feel sometimes you you read the Bible from beginning to end Genesis to Revelation mm-hmm. and the testimony of the Scriptures is you've never mm-hmm. been alone and you will never be alone mm-hmm. and that is especially true for New Testament believers who have the Spirit of God dwelling within them. I mean, it, you know, again, I, I, same same as you, I, it's it's an encouraging idea. And it, how, I, you know, from a, from a concept or from a understanding of Scripture that God is triune, you, you see that kind of maybe academic um, language and you kind of you, your eyes roll back in your head and you, and you kind of go uh oh, this is the boring stuff we got to talk about the, right. the trinity and you, it, but in reality this is this helps to us to understand who god not only the nature of god who mm-hmm. is in who he is but but what he actually is to us and what the importance of that mm-hmm. means to us in, in his presence and his imminence and his um all of those things, I think, is, Absolutely. is powerful. So. I feel like we could only do more podcasts well, on the Trinity, but we make no promises this week, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, we're no, no promises, so I'm not backing you into your corner. Thank you for forcing me into this podcast. It's been helpful for me, uh, yeah. so I appreciate your friendship. Yeah. It's been good for me, too. All right, next week. All right, Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast. Thank you.